Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Scripture reading this morning will be found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 11. Verses 1 through 4. I will read the first verse, and after you join it with me on the second verse, continue with me every other verse. That's Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Would you please stand as we read these verses? Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, and John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sin, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come again to you today to say thank you for this time that we get to share your word and learn from your word. We ask that your blessing be upon the pastor as he delivers his message. We ask this in our Lord, Savior, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Every preacher is a hypocrite. I just thought I'd begin this morning with a little confession. I know we're not Catholics, but every preacher uh, is a hypocrite. And in a sense, the better the preacher, the more of a hypocrite he is. Because as preachers, we're tasked with the job of communicating the Word of God, and none of us live up to it. The more thoroughly we preach the Bible, the more accurately we give uh, the message of God, the higher we push that standard, the more obvious our shortcomings are. I'm reminded of this reality regularly because I preach expositionally through books of the Bible, obviously preaching through Luke the last year. Uh, which means I don't, I don't get to just pick random verses each week and talk about whatever I feel like talking about. Uh, we talk about whatever the next subject is in our, in our book. And by not skipping around like that, I don't have any way of avoiding topics uh, that I'm personally weak in. Uh, but preaching through a book of the Bible means that whatever the next topic is, that's what I have to talk about, whether it's an area of my personal strength or weakness. And I'm reminded of this, especially in the area of prayer. I say all that to say because over the next... A few weeks, we're going to be diving deep on the subject of prayer. And that's because the first 13 verses of Luke 11 are all about prayer. Uh, But please don't think that as I'm talking about prayer uh, these next several weeks that I'm some sort of standard of perfection in this area. I have struggled to pray virtually uh, my whole spiritual life. I was converted at 14, and I would say in those early years, uh, I forced myself to pray. I remember deciding... Uh, to pray an hour a night before bed. And I, and I would kneel uh, beside my bed and I would pray about everything I could possibly think of. And, uh, and then I'd peek at the clock and two minutes and 50 seconds had gone by. And if you ever tried to pray for an extended period of time, that's just the way it is. You, you think you've been praying for half an hour and it's like, you know, three minutes. Um, but I forced myself to pray. I would, I would just get, keep going and, and pray for that hour because I felt like that's what I was supposed to do to be a good Christian. I thought I was uh, earning extra points for endurance or something. But in high school and in college, my prayer life really died out a lot. If I'm going to be honest, throughout the last uh, 10 years or so, 
that I've been a Christian, my prayer life has been uh, inconsistent at best and for periods of time, to my shame, non-existent. Now, I don't know your heart. Maybe you're just a, a way better Christian than I am, but my guess is for most of you that sounds very familiar. Uh, this is an area of weakness for most Christians. Most of us struggle to pray. It's work. We don't really know what to pray for. And even when we do pray, our prayers seem inadequate to us. We didn't pray long enough. We didn't pray eloquently. We prayed for something and it never happened. And so most of us feel like failures in this area. And my goal this month as we focus on prayer is not to make you feel guilty about prayer. I, I grew up in church. I went to Bible college. I heard a lot of preaching on the subject of prayer. And most of the time, the sermon in a nutshell was, uh, you're a loser because you hardly ever pray. You only pray when you want something or need something or are in trouble. You don't really love God because you don't talk to God. Uh, you're like the college kid who only ever calls home because you need more money. Now, it, it wasn't necessarily stated that plainly. For instance, I don't recall a preacher ever actually saying I was a loser, but that's just how I felt as I was listening to people preaching on the subject of prayer. I just felt uh, like this heaped up more and more guilt on me. It made me feel like I'll never be a good prayer. My goal is to make prayer accessible. I hope that as we preach through these these next several weeks, that you'll begin to think, I can do this. If you feel like a failure in prayer, uh, a prayer, you might call yourself, let me encourage you that God does not expect you to pray long, drawn-out, eloquent, impressive prayers. In fact, Jesus said explicitly not to do this. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 7, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. So don't feel like you're a failure in prayer just because you didn't pray for an hour this morning. And be encouraged that the model of prayer Jesus gave in Luke 11, it's only four verses. Uh, so start here. The model prayer is the perfect starting place if your prayer life is dead. These are good training wheels for learning how to pray. And again, I remind you that Jesus told us to pray this. My goal over these next several weeks is not just that you and I would have a better understanding of this text, but rather that we would actually begin to pray this, that every day we would start by praying this prayer to our Father. And so we're going to be learning about prayer throughout this month, but let's put it into practice as we go. Let's begin to pray as Jesus taught us to. As I said last week, the model prayer, it's not about us, it's about God. Uh, prayer should not be about you getting what you want from God, but rather you getting on God's agenda and desiring what he desires. Last Sunday, we talked about the first request, Father, hallowed be your name. We said this isn't a statement of fact, rather it's a request. It's not just saying, God, your name is hallowed, as though it's a, sort of a praise to God. No, this is a, this is a request that we're asking God. That he would hallow his name, that he would cause his name to be revered as holy. We are to pray to our Father that his name would be exalted by us, by our church, and by others. We are to pray for the honoring of God's holy name. And today we're going to look at the next phrase in the prayer, which is Luke 11, verse 2. The very end of the verse says, your kingdom come. Now let's add to that what Matthew says in his account. Uh, Matthew 6.10, the same prayer in another gospel, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so we are to pray for God's kingdom to advance and for his will to be accomplished. Now this morning I have a very sophisticated outline. I know you all are, are used to me having great outlines. 
Uh, and that's a joke because I hardly ever have an outline. I just preach whatever the text says. But uh, you all are really going to be impressed this morning. Are you ready? Okay, here it is. Point one, your. Point two, kingdom. Point three, come. I know you're all thinking it must have taken me hours to come up with this. Very creative. But uh, let's start with that first word, your. Again, I say this model of prayer that Jesus gave to us is about God. It's not about you. Uh, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We aren't asking God to let our our will be done. Uh, This is about him getting his way. And most of us approach prayer from the opposite perspective, don't we? we? We come to God. And uh, we pray, God, here's my agenda, here's my priorities, now please bless it. Uh, Help all the stuff that I want to happen. Instead, the model prayer teaches us to come to God and say, God, help me to have your priorities. Uh, Teach me your will and help me to live for that. Uh, Think about the way you typically pray. And again, maybe you all are such great Christians, and I'm the exception in the room. But when I come to God in prayer, my natural tendency is, uh, you know, I think about all the things that I want to accomplish I think about all the things I want success in. I think about all of the areas of my life that I'm not satisfied with currently. And I say, God, would you help my circumstances improve? Uh, Would you help me to have more success? Uh, Would you, you know, my elbow's hurting today. Would you fix that? Uh, Sort of like God is the genie in the bottle. And we just get to rub and and get the three wishes and, and whatever we want. In other words, we're saying, God, my will be done. If we were to break down most of our prayers, that's what it is. We're asking God to do our will. And if you learn nothing else today, get this. Prayer is not about me getting more of what I want, but rather prayer is me getting more of what God wants. Prayer is supposed to align my thinking with God's will and praying that God's name would be exalted, that his kingdom would advance and that his will would be followed on earth. We're essentially asking God to do all the stuff that he's all about. And so the question might come, well, why are we asking for this? Well, why are we saying God Uh, Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Uh, Let your name be exalted. Uh, Why would we ask God to do that? As though he's up there thinking, well, oh, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, Of course, these these are the things he's all about. Um, So why are we asking him to do something that he wants to have happen? And I think the answer is obvious. It's for our sake. It's not for his sake. Uh, Praying this way helps me to think the way God does. It helps me to have his priorities become my own. And praying this way starts with the understanding that it's not about me. It's all about him. So point number one, your. Point number two, kingdom. What is God's kingdom? Uh, Would it surprise you to know that the kingdom of God is the main theme of the Gospels? There's no phrase in the four Gospels repeated more than the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. They're used interchangeably. It is the main topic of Jesus' preaching. And yet many Christians really don't understand the kingdom of God. In fact, I can tell you personally Uh, Growing up in church my whole life, even after I graduated from Bible college, I probably still could not define for you what the kingdom of God was. Okay, so this is a main theme of the New Testament that I think most Christians don't have a good handle on. So let's make sure that's not us uh, here at Lakeshore Baptist Church. I hope everybody will understand uh, what God's kingdom is. So first, what is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is typically a place with geographic boundaries in which there is a king and there are subjects, right? That's what makes up a kingdom. You have one person in charge, the king, and then you have people who are in subjection to the king. So every kingdom has a king and every kingdom has subjects. If no one's under your authority, you aren't really a king. So the kingdom of God then is a place where God rules. God is the king and we are the subjects. 
Now, the only difference uh, in this kingdom is it isn't a place you can visit. It isn't a location on a map you can point to and say, there's the kingdom of God. No, the kingdom of God is spiritual. And so each one of us who repents of our sins and trusts in Jesus for salvation, we are essentially bowing the knee to King Jesus and saying, I'd like to be a subject in your kingdom. Now, we're going to look at a few scriptures to make sure we're on the right track here, starting with some of the prophecies uh, in the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks often about the coming kingdom of God. Daniel 2, verse 44 says, In the days of those kings, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So Daniel says that God is going to establish a kingdom forever. There, there, there's a coming kingdom that will overtake all the world, that will overtake all of the other earthly kingdoms, bring them to an end forever, because this kingdom is going to overtake the whole earth and stand forever. Now, who's going to be the king of this kingdom? If we look at Daniel chapter 7, a very important text, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus used this title all throughout for himself. It is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He refers to himself often as the Son of Man. So Daniel sees someone coming like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so Daniel says, uh, the kingdom, the king of this kingdom is going to be the Son of Man, which we know is Jesus. And this kingdom is going to take over the entire world. Every nation, every people, every tribe. He's going to have dominion uh, over everyone and they will serve him. And this kingdom will never pass away. It'll never be destroyed. It is everlasting. Now, one more before we jump to the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. You'll be familiar with this. We quote it at Christmas all the time. Uh, For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So a child will be born. We know that this text is talking about Jesus Christ. And this child will establish a kingdom. And the increase of that kingdom of peace will continue forever. It's never ending. Uh, so Jesus starts the kingdom and it spreads. Justice and righteousness are going to be the fruits of this kingdom. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. This is where Jesus shows up and starts claiming, hey, I'm the son of man. I'm the king. And I'm here to set up the kingdom of God. So Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time uh, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus was preaching about the fact that the kingdom was here. A summary of Jesus' ministry would be uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel, or the good news, of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This was Jesus' message, that the kingdom of God had arrived with his arrival. Matthew chapter 12. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, you have an if-then statement. If I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, and this comes in the context uh, where the religious people are accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub, uh, the prince of the demons. And so they're basically saying, uh, Jesus is in league with Satan. And he says, no, that's not true. Uh, kingdom divided against itself can't stand. But if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, which we know is true, then the rest of the verse, the kingdom of God has come. Okay, so we know that, that the kingdom of God came when Jesus arrived on earth. The kingdom of God was there. Now, the confusion comes because at other points, Jesus seems to imply that the kingdom actually is coming in the future, that it hasn't happened quite yet. Uh, for instance, Luke 21, verse 31. So also, when you see these things taking place, talking about future events, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Okay, so there Jesus is saying, when you see these certain signs happening, the kingdom will come soon after that. Okay, I thought the kingdom already came. <laughs> I thought the kingdom came when Jesus came. So what is he referring to here? And I think Luke 17 would help us because the Pharisees asked Jesus about this question. Uh, when does the kingdom come? Luke 17, 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So God's kingdom is in the midst of them. Jesus is the king, and any who will submit to Jesus as king are a part of his kingdom. The kingdom of God did start when Jesus arrived. He began to preach, and people started to follow him, and eventually he selected 12 to be his apostles. And that little group of people in Israel was the start of the kingdom of God that would eventually overtake the whole earth and last forever. So it starts small, and then it spreads. And the kingdom started with Jesus and the small group of people that followed him. And when Jesus left, the kingdom was just getting started. It was just the beginning. Uh, those early followers formed churches. Uh, they were reaching other people, bringing them into the kingdom as well. Here's how Jesus described it in Matthew 13. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Well, how is the kingdom of heaven like a grain of mustard seed? That's a good question. Okay, that's a, a strange analogy. Let's see what he says. Verse 32, it is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the kingdom is like a mustard seed in that it starts small and then slowly grows. That's the analogy Jesus uses. We tend to think of God's kingdom, and I'm not going to get into too much eschatology here uh, about end times prophecies and things, but a lot of people tend to think of God's kingdom as coming like the 82nd Airborne Division. That all at once, you know, everything's terrible, there's wars, everyone's, Christianity's on the decline, there's only a few of us huddling left, and then boom, Jesus shows up. Okay, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the kingdom starts small and, and overtakes the earth. That it slowly spreads its branches throughout the entire earth. It starts small like a mustard seed, but that seed slowly grows into a large tree. That's the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus said the kingdom would start off very small and would slowly overtake the world over time. And that's exactly what happened. The gospel was entrusted to a small group of people living in Israel, a tiny little country, I think the size of New Jersey, uh, in the Middle East, just a little place in the middle of nowhere. And, and that's where the kingdom of God starts. And now here we are on the other side of the planet. 
uh, still preaching the gospel and still talking about the kingdom of God, that we are an example right here in, in Northwest Indiana of God's kingdom overtaking the world. Okay, it started on the other side of the planet with a small group of people in an upper room on the day of Pentecost, and now it's launched forth throughout the entire earth, slowly but surely overspreading and overtaking the world. Every true church is a part of the kingdom of God, and it's still expanding. We're still reaching into new countries and new people groups who have not yet heard the gospel. And Jesus prophesied that this is what would happen. Uh, some of us think of the Great Commission as an impossible command uh, to to teach the gospel and to baptize the nation seems like, well, that's unreachable. It'll never happen. Well, no, Jesus said it would happen. Uh, it's not just a command we're given like an unreachable goal. Jesus said this is actually going to take place. Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, the end does not come until the gospel has overtaken the world. Now, it doesn't mean every single person is saved, but uh, that does mean it's not a small little group of Christians huddling together and then Jesus shows up and saves the day. No, the gospel will overtake the world. Uh, the Bible teaches that the end comes only after the gospel of the kingdom is preached throughout the whole world to all nations. Now, how is it that we can become a part of this kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven, as it's sometimes called? How do we, how do we know if we're in God's kingdom? Uh, first, we become a part of God's kingdom. I'm sorry, coming, be, becoming a part of God's kingdom is synonymous with becoming a Christian. Okay, so when we say, I, I'm a subject in the kingdom of God, we are saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. It simply means you're trusting in Jesus' death on the cross to forgive your sins, and you've submitted to him as your king. Acts 8 verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay, so Philip preached the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, and Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again for your sins. And then the people who believed what he was saying got baptized. Those who understood who Jesus was and what he had done, and those who were also willing to become a follower of Christ, they were baptized as a demonstration of their commitment to Christ. And so if you want to know if you're part of God's kingdom, just ask, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you living... Uh, according to his commands. Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Very important verse. We're going to refer to that a few times throughout the sermon, so make sure you get that. Uh, not everybody who claims Jesus as their Lord is a part of his kingdom, but the one who lives it, <laughs> the one who does the will of my Father, the one who actually is a follower of Jesus Christ, not just in name, but in life. That's the kingdom of God in a nutshell. It's, it's Jesus ruling and reigning over the lives of his followers. And all who submit to Christ and follow his teachings are subjects in his kingdom. So what then does it mean to pray for God's kingdom to come? If the kingdom is already here, if it came when Jesus came, uh, what are we asking for when we say, God, I, I want your kingdom to come? As I pointed out earlier, the kingdom has only just started. It has not fully arrived. Most of the world doesn't even claim to be a part of God's kingdom. And many who call themselves Christians aren't doing the will of Christ. And according to Jesus' own words, they are not true citizens of the kingdom of God. So we've got work to do. If there's coming a day when God's kingdom covers every people and every tribe on earth, and if the end does not come until the gospel of the kingdom is preached throughout the earth, 
We've got our work cut out for us. But we have that promise. One day, as Habakkuk says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Question, how much do the waters cover the sea? In fact, I don't know any part of the sea that isn't covered with water. That's kind of a strange way of saying that. But what he's saying is the earth will be evangelized. The gospel will spread and the knowledge of God will cover the entire earth. It isn't wishful thinking that someday the world would come to Christ. That's the promise of the Bible. Again, not every single soul on earth will be saved. We know that. But the gospel will overspread the world. People will submit to the lordship of Jesus all over and in every people group. And then comes the end. Then comes the return of Christ when he reigns on the earth. This time we're living in now is preparing the world for the reign of Christ. It's our job to multiply citizens for the kingdom. And then the king comes and sits on his throne in Jerusalem. And at that time, all the kingdoms of the world will have been overtaken by the gospel, by the kingdom of God. Uh, Revelation eleven fifteen. these are prophecies about the end time, says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 12, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. There is coming a day when Jesus will reign over the inhabitants of the world. And with this hope, we pray, Father, may your kingdom come. So the first point is your. This is a prayer about God. Second point, kingdom. The kingdom is Jesus ruling in the hearts of men. If you want a simple definition, Jesus is the king. Anyone who submits to him and follows him is a part of that kingdom. Third point, come. What does it mean to pray that God's kingdom would come? Again, I think Matthew's gospel clarifies this point in his account of the prayer where he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, guess what happens when people become a part of God's kingdom? Well, Jesus already told us they do the will of the Father. His will is done. And Jesus defined those who are a part of his kingdom as those who do the will of God. And so the more that God's kingdom advances and spreads throughout the earth, the more God's will is done on earth. In other words, every time a person becomes a follower of Jesus and a citizen of God's kingdom, that's a part of helping fix our broken world. And our world certainly is broken and in need of fixing. Our world was messed up in the Garden of Eden because Adam and Eve chose autonomy over submission to God. They wanted to live their own lives and do whatever they pleased. They, they rejected the kingship, the lordship of God. And it launched our world into sin and chaos. But now that Jesus has come and died on the cross to redeem us, we have this message of hope to give to the world, that if they will repent of their sins, if they will believe the gospel, they can have their sins forgiven and start a new life of following Jesus. And the more people choose to submit to Jesus as their king, the more our world starts to look like the Garden of Eden ideal that God created us to live in. When we follow the commands of our God, that's his kingdom advancing. That is his will being done. So to recap, uh, yes, the kingdom came when Jesus came. It started with a couple hundred subjects to King Jesus in an upper room near Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 citizens were added to this kingdom. And they began to live according to the will of their king. This is one of Jesus' most common ways of talking about Christianity. It's a kingdom. It's a group of people who have bowed the knee to Jesus as their king and are living out of that subjection to him. 
And we are to pray that the kingdom of God would advance, that God's kingdom would continue to overspread the earth. And as God's kingdom spreads, his will is done here on earth the same way it is in heaven. Of course, in heaven, God's will is done perfectly. Uh, No one questions God's commands in heaven, and yet on earth, it's certainly done imperfectly. But on earth, God's will is done more and more as more and more inhabitants of the world recognize the lordship of Jesus and give their lives to his service. So we are to pray that God's kingdom would advance. If you want to help your nation, pray that God's kingship would be recognized by more and more Americans. I pray that we as a country would turn back to God, and that starts on an individual basis. We don't just need a Christian in the White House for a few years. That doesn't really change a whole lot. Uh, We need the culture to change. And the culture will change as people, one by one, bow the knee to King Jesus and begin to live for him. And that's something worth praying for. So we pray, God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. There's really a sequence to this prayer so far, isn't there? Uh, you notice the first prayer is God's, uh, God's name would be hallowed, that his name would be revered. And then secondly, that God's kingdom would come. Thirdly, that his will would be done. God's kingdom will never come where his name is not considered holy. Uh, his will is not done on earth as in heaven unless his kingship is recognized. And so we start by praying that God's name would be revered, that his name would be regarded as holy. And then we pray for God's kingdom, that people would submit to the lordship of our God. And as a result of that, we then pray for his will to be done, that all God's subjects in his kingdom would carry out his desires in the world in perfect obedience. Now, how does God answer this prayer? Uh, How can we see the answer to this prayer, that, that God's kingdom would advance? I wrote down a few thoughts. The prayer that God's kingdom would advance is answered when missionaries go around the world spreading the good news of Jesus. The prayer that God's kingdom would advance is answered when a person gives their life to Christ and they're changed as a result. The prayer that God's kingdom would advance is answered when a husband is won to Christ by the lifestyle of a godly wife. The prayer that God's kingdom would advance is answered when a prodigal comes to his senses and returns to God. The prayer that God's kingdom would advance is answered when Bickering Christians reconcile and start working together for the kingdom. The prayer that God's kingdom would advance ultimately is answered when Jesus returns and reigns forever. In other words, when the king comes, the kingdom will come. Now, as we close, let's think about what the effect should be on our lives of praying this way, praying that God's kingdom would come, that God's kingdom would advance in the world. Again, one of our goals throughout these several weeks that we're studying the Lord's Prayer is Uh, to ask ourselves, what effect should praying this way have on our lives? And the obvious answer is that if you're praying that God's kingdom would spread, you should live for that goal. You you should be thinking about how you can use your time and your money to advance the kingdom of God. Or as Jesus said, uh, seek first the kingdom of God. He said, don't don't get caught up worrying about uh, the needs that you have in this world and forget the kingdom. Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God. Secondly, praying for God's will to be done should result in us being a part of that answer. It would be quite hypocritical to pray every morning for God's will to be done, and then you get off your knees and live the day however you want with no concern for his will in your life. And so we pray that God would bring his kingdom increasingly and cause his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that he would start that work in me. 
We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.